And now, without further ado, I would love to introduce our lecturer for this evening. Reverend Michael Mather, Mike, has served as the pastor of Broadway United Methodist Church in Indianapolis, Indiana, since 2003. He is the author of Having Nothing, Possessing Everything, Finding Abundant Communities in Unexpected Places. And he is also on the faculty of the Asset-Based Community Development Institute at DePaul University. Mike will deliver um, the third of the Princeton Lectures on Youth, Church, and Culture and the fourth. So we hope that you'll also come back tomorrow morning to hear him deliver the fourth lecture. Tonight's lecture is entitled, Who Has Time for Joy? And what a wonderful title for those of us who are in youth ministry. Um, when I called Mike to ask him if he would do this lecture, I called with really, really hopeful and eager anticipation because I had gotten my hands on a copy of his book. And it's one of those books that even when I was uh, up very, very late at night with a very, very small child, uh, I was reading. I, in my insomnia, I was reading this book. It was, it was also just something I was drawn to, really, as we think about new and innovative forms of ministry here at Princeton Seminary. This book has been uh, an incredible guiding force. So please warmly welcome with me, Reverend Michael Mather. May say thank you, Abigail, and 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 may just say that I think my book is a really good cure for insomnia. <laughs> so if you're if you if you are looking for that, um, um, I'm I, I am honored to be here, and I'm really grateful. And thank you, Abigail, for inviting me and for for helping make this possible. Um, uh, I also want to thank Patty Scott, who's here, who's who's been housing me for the last couple of days as I've been around. She lives just a little bit from here, and as she's a good friend, and appreciate her doing that. And um, a surprise guest to me tonight is Alberto Hidalgo, who is um, the chair of our governing council at Broadway United Methodist Church in Indianapolis, and happened to be in town. Not that it's intimidating to speak, you know, when the chair of your governing council is. Uh, there, there. But I guess it happens regularly on Sundays. So, well, but thank you for being here. So, um, would you pray with me, please? Gracious and loving God, we thank you for the ways in which you pour yourself out upon us. Open us to you and to one another in this moment in time. Upon the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So um, I have lived and worked in low-income, low-wealth neighborhoods um, for all my life. And um, all my adult life, that's where I've lived and worked. If there's one lesson I have learned, it is this, that the biggest need there is, is to be needed. So thank you for the invitation to be here. I'm glad to be here with young people and those who sit with young people. I'm I, I see the hands that hold one another up, young hands and old hands. I, I see the hands that raise one another up, calloused hands and soft hands, and thank you. Um, one of the pastors I was blessed to work with for many years is a woman named Rachel Matheny. And Rachel went and met with a group of young people who are blind. And she said to them, how does the seeing world treat you? And they said, well, that's the wrong language. And she said, I don't know what you mean. And they said, she said, it's not, they said to her, it's not the seeing world, it's the sighted world. 
And she said, well, I don't understand what you mean. And they said, just because you have sight doesn't mean you can see. I had sight, but I was blind. I came to Broadway for the first time because I've been there this time since 2003, but I was also at Broadway from 1986 through 1991. I was a year out of seminary and committed to helping the poor, standing with those who were mistreated by the world. The poor needed me. I knew it. I was there to help them, to lift them up, to save them. I was convinced that I was doing Jesus' work. Broadway Church, to tell you a little bit about it, is a white, historic, mainline church. White flight and racism drove people into the suburbs once black folks, once black faces started showing up in houses around them. It was like the bathtub plug was pulled and the white people drained out and went to the suburbs. A few remained committed to two things, returning the church to its former glory and serving the least of these, people would say. Serving, you know, the poor, the uneducated, the under-resourced, the juvenile delinquents, the mass incarcerated. I was excited to be a part of it. And this is a big building, I got to tell you. We have nine kitchens in this building. We have 27 bathrooms. It is um, a cathedral in lots of ways. So... Um, we had lunch at the church every day during the summer for young people. Children and youth would line up outside of the church doors and wait to be let in. The crowd outside the door was always kind of vibrating with life. The people seemed to be moving all together at once, every shade of blackness, cocoa, chocolate, ebony, thrumming together in the full flower of their possibility. And it was my first week at the church and I was standing in my office looking out the window at that crowd of bodies and I saw outside my window from my desk a flash of steel. A young woman with a knife in her hand was in the middle of it all. She raised the knife. I was slow to understand. She was gonna stab somebody and I didn't have time to get out of the door. But before she brought the knife down, another young woman, part of the crowd, a teenager with a broom in her hands, jumped in front of her. And she started sweeping. And the young woman with the knife moved backwards. And the broom swept the knife and the young woman down the street and around the corner. And I said to somebody, would you go get that young woman, the, the one with the broom? And um, they brought, she came in and... and I later learned her name was Shauna Murphy, and she sat down and said, I'm going to be the next Martin Luther King Jr. Hell, I believed her. I hadn't been able to stop it, but someone had, and the answer was in the crowd. I didn't take the lesson right away. I'm a little slow. I would come to see, but it would take a long time. These people didn't need my help. They needed to be seen, and it was a while before I knew it. You see, what I knew, or what I thought I knew, was that I was the hands and feet of Jesus. Over five and a half years, I worked in that community as the neighborhood pastor, the pastor in the streets. I lived just three blocks over. I ran the programs to serve our neighbors. 
I ran the programs to help the needy, feed the hungry, educate the uneducated. I ran a tutoring program, the summer program, the Christmas program, the food pantry, the Thanksgiving baskets. I did it all. I got a lot of attention and I got a lot of praise. And when I got there, the summer program was basketball for the boys and cheerleading for the girls. Very painfully, we changed it. Took a long time, couple of years. Actually, I don't have time for that story, but can I say it just really slowly again? Very painfully, we changed it. We built each week around a spiritual principle. We used the principles of Kwanzaa. We started every day with devotions. We ended every day with devotions. We had 250 young people every day, nine to five. I broke my arm, patting myself on the back. I felt so great about it. Classes filled the large buildings, rooms, poetry, music, math, history, Bible study, violin lessons, more education for a healthy body, recreation for the human spirit, all of it. And I felt great about it. But the last nine months I was there in 1991, I did nine funerals for young men under 25 years old in the four block radius around our church building. Most of those young men had grown up in the programming of the church. I thought, I'm doing great work. People said, you're doing great work. But their dead bodies said something else. What I was doing wasn't helping. When I expressed this, people would say to me, oh no, if, if you hadn't been doing this, it would have been even worse. And I said two things to that. One is no. And the second thing is, even if you're right, this isn't good enough. So let me say their names here. David, Marvin, Scott, Eckett, Rodney, Jacques, Landon, Oscar, and William. Um, when I think about this and when I think about the theme of this being about movement and body, I, I thought about poetry because I think poets kind of capture what we can't in prose. The poet Dennis Smith, do you know Dennis Smith? Anybody know Dennis Smith? You should read his poetry. <laughs> It's amazing. He wrote in a, a poem called Short Film in a section titled, Who Has Time for Joy? These lines. How do you expect me to dance when every day someone who looks like everyone I love is in a gunfight armed only with skin? Their dead bodies stole my breath from me. I thought I was bringing Jesus. Their dead bodies disagreed. Now, my favorite psalm in the whole Bible is, is Psalm 30. God's anger is but for a moment. God's favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Dennis Smith's poem continues and challenged my blindness. Frothing in the corners of my mouth, my mouth, 
hungry for a prayer to make it all a lie? Reader, what does it feel like to be safe, white? How does it feel to dance when you're not dancing away the ghost? How does joy taste when it's not followed by will come in the morning? Reader, it's morning again, and somewhere a mother is pulling her hands across her seed's cold shoulders, kissing what's left of his face. Where is her joy? What's she to do with a son who will spoil soon? And what of the boy? What was his last dream? Who sang to him while the world closed into dust? There was no room for joy, I thought. I had good teachers, like the young woman with the broom, Shauna, like the young men who died, like Ditto who gave advice about life on the basketball court every day. There were teachers all around me and I was falling in love with them but I still wasn't getting it. So I told the bishop, why don't you send me somewhere else? I mean, I'm not, doing anything worthwhile here. The bishop sent me to a small church in a low-income neighborhood in South Bend, Indiana. I should probably say here, though it may get confusing, that he sent me to a church named Broadway. <laughs> Maybe I thought I could start over again. Same name, just different shot, do better. Here I would help, but in a better way. I didn't know how. I would try. Now, this little church had 40 people on Sunday morning. It, too, had a grand pass, but its building was smaller and had moved past the days when it longed for the grandeur of old. It, too, was committed to serving the poor in the neighborhood. We had a food pantry. We had free Sunday lunch. We had a clothing closet and a senior citizen's lunch. When people came to the food pantry, we had a form that people had to fill out because we got government surplus food. It was a government form, and it said, how much are your expenses and how much are your income? So people would write down, well, my income is $600 a month, and my expenses are $1,200 a month. We're a little congregation of 40 people. What could we do about that? We couldn't do anything with that. So we put it in a file cabinet, and once a quarter, I'd turn it into the Red Cross, and I expected that they put it in a file cabinet. The information was useless. So people moved in and out of the food pantry without us ever connecting. We, we would see regulars every month, but they would disappear until they came back for food a month later. And all we asked were those questions on the form. We didn't really talk or what we call in Indiana visit. At our church after worship every Sunday, there was a lunch. And... On Pentecost Sunday, we gathered for worship, and after worship, we had this lunch that we had every Sunday, and wherever the preacher sat, you could come and talk about the sermon. Made it for really good, you know, attendance around that table. And, and, and after lunch on Pentecost Sunday, we're sitting there, and this woman says to me, her name's Donna, she says to me, you said that Peter, reading from the book of the prophet Joel, says that God's spirit flows down on all people, young and old, women and men. And I thought, how good am I? It's a half an hour later and she remembers what I said. <laughs> I'm an excellent preacher. 
I said, yes, 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 that's right. And she said, so how come you don't treat people like that? I said, what do you mean? She said, when people come to the food pantry, you ask people how poor they are. If you believe God's spirit flow down on all people, young and old, women and men, how come you don't ask people that? Good question. So the day after Pentecost in 1992, we started asking different questions. We asked people 10 pages of questions. Have you taken care of older folks? Have you taken care of children? Are there members of your family? Are, have you had a job somewhere? Have you helped a neighbor out? Can you fix a toaster? Do you drive a car? Do you play a musical instrument? Do you sing? Have you cooked for more than 10 people? Have you cleaned up after more than 10 people? We asked three questions at the end. What three things do you do well enough that you could teach somebody else how to do it? Because everybody has something they can teach. What three things would you like to learn that you don't already know? And who besides God and me is going with you along the way? So we asked these three questions. Well, the first person who come to us is this little woman about this tall. She lived half a block from the street church named Adele Almagir. And she told us she was a good cook. So we said, prove it. She said, what do you mean? Well, cook for the custodian, secretary, and pastor lunch on Friday. So she cooked for us, and it was great. And we paid her for it. So the leadership of the neighborhood organization was meeting, and we said, don't meet somewhere else. Meet here at the church and let Adele cook for you. So they ate there, and over the next nine months, she cooked for three different events in the community. The Studebaker Elementary School in our neighborhood had a PTA meeting. They needed food. She provided it. The Southeast Side Neighborhood Health Center had an open house. They needed food. She provided it. Memorial Hospital in South Bend had a press conference in our neighborhood. They needed food. She provided it. That all went great. Well, then the Chamber of Commerce called. We'd like to have an all-day meeting of our leadership program in your church building. And we said, well, that day works. You can do that. Since we're going to be there all day, we need to use your kitchen. We said... You can use our kitchen, but we would prefer that you use our caterer. They said, okay. We took $20 and bought her 1,000 business cards. Said, La Chaparita Catering, Spunky Tex-Mex Food. And she fed 70 of the business and civic leaders in the community. They passed out her business card to everybody there. Through that, she got connected to the Michiana Business Women's Association. And a year and a half later, she opened up Adelita's Fajitas at the corner of 8th and Harrison in Elkhart. Now, if we had asked her when she showed up, tell us how poor you are. We would have all ended up poorer for it. And we would have missed a lot of great food. In John 10, Jesus says, I come that you may have life abundant. That's not life abundant when your pockets are full. That's not life abundant when everything's going all, all right. It's life abundant right here, right now, in this moment. It is true. And I realized if she had come the day before Pentecost, I never would have found this out. But it would have been true. She didn't need a class in life skills. She didn't need lessons. She needs somebody who could see and know the gifts she had and would, it was interested in enjoying them and sharing them with other people. I, I said, this is what I believe. So why am I not doing this? And then I realized, because I got a theological education. <laughs> this is what I believe, but all my practices 
are about doing something else. All our practices are about scarcity. All our practices, all the ways we have to look at people is about what's missing, not what's there. All the practices I've been taught, I mean, I was taught this is what you do in the city. You come and you, you ask people, you know, what are your needs? You do a needs survey. In the time I was in South Bend, the 11 and a half years I was there, over 50 times I was asked to fill out a needs survey by organizations, institutions in the neighborhood, including the United Religious Communities, including other churches. You know, whatever, nobody ever came and asked us what gifts people had. Why do we do this? Because all our practices were oriented around this. I didn't have to make a leap in terms of my theology. I had to make a leap in terms of my practice. You know, um, recovery movements, right? We say in recovery movements, you don't think your way into new ways of acting, you act your way into new ways of thinking. That's true in everything, in everything, in every way. So I began experimenting with practices, trying to figure out what practices built on abundance rather than scarcity looked like. What if we started asking everyone those questions? What would it look like to really believe that everyone is gifted? So we ended up developing what we called the five rules to keep from being the agent of the devil in the middle of the church. So can I give you those five rules? So the first rule is never do something for someone that they can do for themselves. We call this the iron rule. Now, I've talked about this lots of places. I've talked about it in places around the world. I've talked about it in churches and in United Ways and in other organizations around this country. But it was the unique experience I had speaking in Albany, New York, to a group of people called the Mental Health Empowerment Project that taught me most about this. I told them this rule. This was a group of people who were people, as they said, we are people who've been labeled with a psychiatric diagnosis, right? And I said this rule and people cheered and they clapped and they stomped. You didn't do that. I said to them afterwards, why'd you do that? And, and I asked the people at the front table, what, what was that about? And they said, nobody ever lets us do anything. Everybody wants to help us, fix us. Nobody ever lets us do anything. The second rule is find another's gifts, talents, capacities, passions, and dreams, and find a place for them in the life of the community. Find another's gifts, talents, capacities, passions, and dreams, and find a place for them in the life of the community. Find another's gifts, talents, capacities, passions, and dreams, and find a place for them in the life of the community. Remember what I told you, we, those last three questions I asked in the food pantry when people came? What three things do you do well enough you could teach somebody else how to do? Remember that? Hold that for a minute. About the time, about a year after, so it's 1993, and my oldest son is starting kindergarten. So I go with him to kindergarten roundup at the public school and I'm filling out the paperwork for him for school and one of the questions is, can you volunteer in the school office? Yes. Do you know how to use a computer? Yes. 
Do you have a flexible schedule? I'm a pastor. Yes. <laughs> Nobody called me. It would have been better if they never asked. So don't ever ask somebody about their gifts, talents, capacities, passions, and dreams unless you are prepared to try and use them. You don't have to be successful, but you have to try, right? So, so I went back and I was like, I asked all these people these questions and I <laughs> then left it. So I went back and I started visiting the people who'd filled out that part and asking if people would teach. I said, if you can get three students, I won't get three students, but if you'll get three students to show up, you can teach in the church building. We'll provide the supplies, but you've got to get the people. So we called it the School of the Spirit. So we had classes in Mexican cooking, of course, Adele, right? Basic auto repair, Bible study, music, art, the history of the Hollywood Western and why black men were left out, and conversational physics. Yes, yes, yes. I, was having, I remember the guy who had talked to me about this. He said he could teach it. I remember he said conversational physics, and I looked up. And he said, well, you didn't think I was always a junkie, did you? I said, well, I... And he said, I was getting my PhD in physics at Notre Dame when I got addicted. Oh. So some of these classes, by the way, got attended so well that, 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 so we would put a coffee can in the room, and if anybody put money in the coffee can, the teacher could keep it. But then some of the classes that were attended so well, we ended up um, charging for those. So we moved from the School of the Spirit to what we called Broadway University or as we called it, old B-U, B-E-Y-O-U. <laughs> and, and, and so people could pay seven bucks up front for a week for a lesson. So those classes had at least seven people in them. So every teacher was getting at least 50 bucks for their classes. And they put it in the newspaper. And we get a call at the church. And somebody says, oh, I want to take the class in conversational psychics. And, and we said, well, well, no, 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 it's conversational physics. And the person said, well, then I'm not interested at all. <laughs> and I wondered later, what's a class in conversational psychics like? <laughs> I guess it's really quiet because everybody knows what everybody else is thinking. <laughs> so I just want to pause for a minute to, to make sure that we're here on the same page. Do you have any questions or comments or challenges about this? Do you understand that? I'm, I'm here, I'm, I was trying to make sense of the world, and I was trying to make sense of the gospel, and I was trying to make sense of what was happening around me, and I realized that I'd been schooled in scarcity. Um, so let me talk about the three, the three other rules for keeping from being the agent of the devil in the middle of the church. The third rule is don't give poor people services, give poor people income, because poor means people don't have money. It doesn't mean people aren't smart. It doesn't mean people aren't gifted. It means people don't have money. And I was like, why did I not know this? I mean, even in my language, somebody's poor, that means they don't have money. But to me, it meant all this other stuff. And I, 
Yes. So the third rule was, so I went to a meeting in the St. Joseph County, um, which is around South Bend, that's St. Joseph County. The health department had a meeting and they were announcing the results of a five-year study and they had studied it. And after five years, what they had discovered is that people who had less money were less healthy than people who had more money. We were, of course, shocked at this news. We went around the room to tell what we thought we should do about this, and everybody in the room was a healthcare professional or a religious professional. And what we all suggested was programs that would pay ourselves to provide services to people we had just said were not as healthy because they didn't have more money. My mother used to say to me, Mike, have a little common sense. And it took me a long time to learn that. But I, yeah, I didn't even think about it. So if people are bent on, so um, if, don't give poor people services, give poor people income, because poor means people don't have money. The fourth rule is if people are hell-bent on providing services rather than income, if people are hell-bent on providing services rather than income, see that it's done in such a way that people have agency or choice. Right? So, and this is very practical. We had a food pantry, I told you, and we gave out Thanksgiving baskets every year. And one of the things we would give out in Thanksgiving baskets would be um, pumpkin pie filling and a pie crust. Well, when we were, we would get donations from area schools around Thanksgiving, you know, and we would get all these canned goods in and then we would put together in Thanksgiving baskets. Well, we decided we should be giving people agency and choice so people could pick for themselves and no one ever picked the pumpkin pie filling. And we realized for years we had been getting back in school fun drives the pumpkin that we had passed out the year before. <laughs> Just on a very practical level, it wasn't happening. And the fifth rule is Practice hospitality. You know, we had an intern at our place from the School of Social Work. His name is Josh. And Josh went to talk at the local Presbyterian church in our neighborhood where he'd grown up about what we were talking about at Broadway. And people said to him, um, well, Josh, but if I find somebody who loves fishing, what program do I connect them to? And Josh said, Tom... If I said to you that I'd love to go fishing, you wouldn't say to me, boy, do I have a program for you. You'd say, where are the best spots? How come you haven't invited me along? I want to go along. Let's go fishing together. Let me tell you where I go. What do you do with the fish when you catch them? Do you cook them? Can, we, can I have dinner with you? Can we do this together? That's what hospitality is. It's sharing with one another the things we care and love, the things... We are deep within us. So, those are the five rules to keep from being our rules to keep from being the agent of the devil in the middle of the church. So, years later, the bishop moves me back to Broadway Church in Indianapolis. The summer program that I had left was running in the same way as when I left it. So, over the next few years, we changed it, but it was really, and it was hard. I actually heard once someone call this discernment by nausea. You know what this is when you know something has to change and it's not going to be fun? We decided we would no longer catalog the ills of our neighbors and try to fix them. They knew what was wrong. I thought I knew what was wrong. 
Everybody would want to do a needs survey. Nobody ever asked us what our gifts were. So just a couple of years, in fact, just last year or two years ago, a church agency in our town invited churches for a, to apply for a grant to do community ministry. They asked the churches to do a survey inside their congregation of the needs and the gifts of the people in the congregation. And they asked people to do a survey in the neighborhood of the needs. Yes, so you were asking about your churches getting this. Um, in Matthew 11, John the Baptist is in jail. You remember this, right? And he sends his disciples to go ask Jesus, are you the one? And, and John, Jesus sends word by his disciples and said to him, um, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor hear good news, and blessed is the one who takes no offense at me. Do you all know Flannery O'Connor? She's a novelist. She wrote a novel called Wise Blood, and in that novel there's a character named Hazel Motes. And Hazel is a pastor in the Church of Christ without Jesus where the blind don't see, the deaf don't hear, and them that's dead stays that way. That was her critique of the church. That was her critique of me. I believed I was the one who brought these things. I ran programs to bring these things, rather than believing that this was already true in the lives of people around me. I guess you'd say I have a realized eschatology. I believe these things are true, it's just we pretend like they aren't. We live like they aren't. So I thought I was the one. I thought I had the answers. I thought I was the savior. So I moved back to Indianapolis in 2003, and Shauna, the young woman with the broom, right? She was now in her late 30s, and she was, at this point, the head of the 21st Century Scholars Program for the state of Indiana. The 21st Century Scholars Program is funded by federal money. It's in every state in the union. And it's for low-income kids when they're in school. You sign up when you're in middle school. And if you meet a series of benchmarks when you graduate, it'll pay for tuition at a public college in your state. So Shauna was in charge of that. So the first thing she did was she gathered her staff together. And she said this, we employ people in every county in this state to run our program. Whenever a position comes open, I want you to hire the parent of a child in our program. Now this is brilliant, right? Because there are two things that are true in this moment. One is, is that people who are low income could use a job. <laughs> and the second is, who cares more about what's going on? She ran that program for 10 years this way. She used a very conservative Republican administration in our state to redistribute the wealth. She put money in the hands of the people who were low income. And when she did that, it put the parents in charge of the whole thing. So the staff used to run something, uh, continuing ed, for the people in the program. No, now it was the parents who did that, and the parents who did that. So the University of Wisconsin and the University of Illinois are both doing a study about the effects of this um, in, in um, Indiana and, and what the effects of this were on the families and the people involved with this. 
By the way, her staff said to her, and remember, these are really good public servants, and I'm not making fun of them. I'm not, because it's what I would have said years ago. They said to her, why are parents important? You know, I had run programs for years for kids, and, and did I go and talk with all the parents? No, I didn't do that. I didn't treat people respectfully. I mean, I did treat people cordially and genially, but I, did I really respect it? I once had somebody in the tutoring program say to me, my child's parents don't care about her. I said, is that right? She said, yes. I said, what are her parents' names? And she couldn't tell me, right? Do we want people talking about ourselves? <laughs> Anybody, right? Without even knowing our names. Shauna will tell you that what she did, she did in this way because she is a disciple of Jesus Christ and because she is a member of Broadway. Now, I just want to pause for a minute and say this. Every year in our state, because this happens in every United Methodist Conference, there's a United Methodist gathering, a conference, right? And at that conference, we celebrate the ministry of the laity. And we celebrate food pantries, soup kitchens, Bible studies, vacation Bible schools, mission trips, things like that. You know what nobody's ever celebrated there? Shauna. What Shauna did. What Shauna did changed things more than any of those programs ever did. And she isn't celebrated for that because we have narrowed what we understand as ministry and discipleship to what happens in and through the agency of the church rather than in and through the agency of our lives. So, I'm sorry if hopefully there isn't a bishop here. <laughs> Jesus tells John these things are already true. I don't know about John, but I didn't believe it. I thought I did, but I acted like I didn't. I thought I was the one who caused blind eyes to see, the deaf to hear, the dead to be raised. I wasn't looking to see if these things were already true. So I thought to myself, what would it look like to show that I wasn't the Savior and that Jesus was already doing this healing work? So this is what we did. We stopped doing the summer program, and we hired young people in our neighborhood and we paid them to meet their neighbors. And they do three things. And this is where I'm gonna talk more about Diamon. So you asked. So Diamon had moved down to um, Indianapolis in the fall of 2003, he and his wife and their two children. And he'd moved in and um, he would walk down to see me every day, live four blocks from the church, and he would tell me, Mike, I just met this guy at the corner of 32nd and Park and he plays chess on his, on his front porch every day, and he's teaching the kids about life while he's doing it, and he's great. Or I just walked by the Buddha Boys, the local gang at the corner of 31st and Broadway, and one of them's a poet, and one of them's a musician, and one of them's a mechanic, and one of them loves science, and he would tell me about this. So at one point, I finally said to Diamond, how'd you like to get paid for what you already do? Would you be the roving listener? Would you pay attention to the gifts, talents, dreams, and passions of our neighbors and help us pay attention to that ourselves? So they did. So what Diamond suggested at this point when we were doing the summer is that we should hire young people from the neighborhood and they should do the same thing. 
So we hired them. We call them the Roving Youth Corps. And they did three things. They named the gifts, talents, dreams, and passions in their neighbors. They lay hands on them and bless them. And they connect them with other people who care about the same thing. Name, bless, and connect. Name, bless, and connect. And they did that um, in order to build community, economy, and mutual delight. Because people don't live on bread alone, right? Death had surrounded us in our community. Too much death. And yet, in the midst of death, don't we say in the church that there's life? How come I was never pointing it out? How come I was never looking for it? So, Danez Smith goes on in his poem, and I want to say a word about this. He says a little bit more. I have no more room for grief, for it is everywhere now. Listen, listen to my laugh. And if you'll pay attention, you'll hear his wake. So, I want to show you a party that went on in our neighborhood. This is called the Cultivating Joy Cipher. This was young men in our community who decided they wanted to celebrate joy. Cultivate joy. Yes, I said build community, economy, and mutual delight. Those young people would say to me, don't build it, cultivate it. Right? So they held this event. If you can see behind them on the house, behind them, there's a house behind them, there's a picture. So that house was an abandoned house. What they had done is they had gone around and taken photographs of their neighbors. They had taken photographs of a kid on his father's shoulders. They had taken photographs of a potter in his front yard doing pottery, and they put it up, blew it up, and put it on the side of abandoned buildings in our neighborhood. Then they got cited by code enforcement <laughs> for beautifying the neighborhood, <laughs> for taking empty spots. But that was what I had done. That was what we had done, and these young people did this. These are young men from our neighborhood who gathered together to love each other. They called their event, as I said, Cultivating Joy Cipher. They didn't do that to avoid the grief they felt. They did it in response to the grief they felt. The grief in their bodies. They came together. They shared the salsa they made. They recited the poetry they had written. They ate together, laughed together, told stories together, played music together. They threw pots on wheels in their front yard. They played games, a new game created by younger people in the neighborhood based on Black Wall Street. They said, we want to play this instead of Monopoly. One neighbor received some money to throw parties in the neighborhood, and that neighbor was Diamon Arges. And um, Diamond had got this money, to, and they told him they wanted him to use it to throw parties. Why does he throw parties? He throws parties, he says, because Jesus was always throwing parties. That's what he would tell you. Some of the parties were small. Roe and Earl, a couple who live on a corner about half a block from Diamond, would have kids stop by their house after school every day, and they passed out snacks and Roe plays the violin. She'd give violin lessons. 
Earl painted, they'd paint together, they laughed and hung out, and Rowan Earl said they wanted to throw a party and ask for some money from Diamond. He happily gave it. It was a Friday night. It was the summer back in 2016. It was the summer when the killings of black men by police were on social media every day. This was the week of shootings in Louisiana and Texas. The party gathered slowly. Some neighbors who cooked set out small plates of food to share. Music was in the air. Then police officers stopped by and things got tense. Neighbors thought, they're here to shut us down. But here's the video from that setting. Let me... So the learning tree, I should say, because this is learning tree is up, is what Diamond and his neighbors call each other. They call each other the learning tree. We are getting a new look at the video showing a deadly officer involved shooting in Louisiana. We must warn you, the sight and the sound are graphic. I, I, I just call it the weekend July. It was a week from hell with the killings going on. It was a terrible two weeks. The week weekend preceding open bike. The week preceding, and that's why open bike was so powerful too, because we needed it. That was a. Uh, yeah, tell that story. That's the story that we was talking about before. Yeah, y'all almost didn't make it. We had been transparent with each other, but I don't think we'd ever been vulnerable around each other. And we were broken because we didn't, it, it was, we were at a point where we couldn't even understand the concept of the world. Like, hey, what's happening? I don't, I, I can't think straight. I can't, and then, you know, it was just back to back. Back to back it was three days of national violence on a worldwide stage. And we were just in bad straits and me and Roe got together and talking about canceling open bite. And, you know, we, we just couldn't emotionally do it. chaos in the streets of downtown Dallas tonight as gunshots ring out. In the crosshairs, police officers. What started as a peaceful protest in response to the recent deaths of black men at the hands of police in Louisiana and Minnesota, interrupted by a hail of gunfire. officers were hit and one civilian. Five of the officers are dead. We got to a point where it was one day where we just looked at each other and was like, I can't do this, man. He went in the house, I went and took a drive, man. We just, it was, we were, we had, we had to shake it. We had dead. It all happened uh, one of those three nights. It might have been night one. Uh, we ended up at our house just sitting around talking together, fellowshipping, as you know, it was me, uh, J.Y., you were wrong, uh, he came by later yeah. on, uh, Eric Simons. But it was, it was, for the, for the beginning of it, it was two black men, two black men and two black men, trying to deal with what the world had dealt us in the past 24 hours, and it was tough. Let's enjoy ourselves, let's love each other, meet some
somebody, crack somebody, get to know somebody that you might not have had a chance to get to know. Let's wake up. Let's get strong. Everything we do tonight. But so, yeah, so tell me about that. You can't open fire. The police presence and it was nothing but love and them they're clapping and eating and having a good time. It was people saying let them go ahead. Tell that story. I like that. that, that was good. Open bite was so transformative. Like I, I can't even describe because it, it was the event directly after we decided to transition from event planners to community organizers. So it was our first event as community organizers. And so Months prior, we had this idea, and we're like, okay, yeah, let's work with it. And so we put out a couple words and asked for a couple favors, and we're like, oh, some people are actually interested in this. All right, well, we're used to throwing events, so we're like, yeah, it's gonna be about 60, 75, we may even break 100 in this event, baby. And my wife looked up, and she was like, baby, people are still asking to be involved. People are still asking to be involved. I'm like, oh, okay. So we, we might actually break 100. Good, this is a good event. I walked outside from my house and looked out in the lot at 8 o'clock and there was like 40 people there. We're like, oh, so I go in the house, baby, no people are here. We don't have time to finish cooking. We were supposed to cook in it too. We don't have time to finish cooking. So we ran outside, started getting stuff together. People needed ice, people needed electricity, people needed fuel, people needed water. You know, we're just running back and forth. And by the time we had got some semblance of sanity, took a breath and we looked at each other and looked out again. It was like 90 people here. In like an hour and a half, it grew from 40 to 90. And we're like, oh my goodness, what is happening? I, I project because of the flow of things, at all times from between eight and 10, there was consistently 180 people there. But given the rotation of people, people coming and leaving, people coming and going, upwards of 300 people came. We started, you know, mingling about a little bit. Of course, taking care of stuff, putting out fires, and just listening to conversation, and listening to laughter, and listening to people connected and releasing and being relieved and not having to stress about what was going on. In that moment, we realized it was something big. This isn't even about the cooks. This isn't about the performances. This isn't even about this particular event. This is about all these people who were so affected in this past week coming together to heal and just shed off the stress that they just dealt with for the past 72 hours. That was open bite night um, in, in 2016. This wasn't a church event, but it was an event that happened because people in the church were living their lives and because we recognized and then celebrated and invested in the gifts around us. If the church had tried to do something ourselves, it wouldn't have been nearly as powerful, as healing, or as joyful. The two most essential elements to what we do as church, as followers of Jesus Christ, is grieve and celebrate. We can't do anything unless we do both of those. The last line of the Dan S. Smith poem that I've been quoting is this. Bring the fire, he says. 
Yes, bring the fire. Amen.